You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. And we're going to continue in this same posture, not just you know, pairing our words with our deeds uh, you know, around the world, but certainly pairing our word and deed here in Huntington Beach. This morning, we're going to be launching uh, Serve City. So Serve City, we had our first official event about a month ago where we raised all those backpacks to give to the underserved community there of Oakview. We had a goal of 500 backpacks. We had over 600 that were given. I mean, again, When the opportunity was there, put before you guys, as well as the other churches, people gave above and beyond. We were able to donate thousands of dollars uh, to the school there, all in the name of Jesus. Well, that was kind of a pre-launch event that we did together. Now we're officially starting to collect information, putting together a database of volunteers, this army of servants in the city, collected from all the various churches. If you're not aware, Serve City is a nonprofit that we created here at Branches, to serve as a platform for church collaboration so that all the churches in the city could participate together in a common work to bear Jesus in our deeds as well as with our words. So after service, you're going to get one of these interest list signups. You can fill out your name, your email address, and some of the other information if you'd like to focus on an area of interest, homelessness. There's some big initiatives going on there with the city, prayer, general serve opportunities. You turn this into us, and we're not signing your life away. We're just making sure that you guys can get the opportunities before you because there are so many opportunities that are being generated all the time. We don't have time enough to tell you about all of them on the weekend. We want those to be able to go straight directly to you. And you may be involved in an online you know, neighborhood application or something like You might be on Nextdoor. You're hearing about coyotes and all that kind of stuff in your neighborhood and people complaining about stuff left and right. That's not what this is. This is all about us being turned loose as the body of Christ. And hopefully we're not just going to have a few hundred volunteers sign up today, but thousands upon thousands that are going to sign up through the various churches together. So very exciting. And that goes right along with what we're talking about today. Because in this series, Word and Deed, we shared first week about the power of the gospel message, the power of God's word. Last week, how that needs to be paired with a spiritual integrity and the way that we live God's word in our relationships with one another. And if we do that, if we, if we pair our preaching with spiritual integrity in the way that we live together, that's going to magnify the gospel in the world. People are going to recognize that Jesus was sent by our Father in heaven. But we also have to consider the spiritual integrity The way our deeds, our actions, our lifestyle have to be paired with the gospel in the way that we relate to outsiders, those who are not believers. It's not just about the spiritual integrity in here. It's about spiritual integrity that we have out there in the rest of the world. Yeah, we want people to receive Jesus, but how are we going to them as we share with them about Jesus? That's going to be answered in our study this morning. Would you turn to John chapter 4 with me? John chapter 4. If you need a Bible, one of the ushers will pass one to you. So that you can follow along in the scriptures. Just go ahead and raise your hand. They'll pass one. The verses will also be on the screens. Now, this is a famous passage, and for many reasons. And we're not going to be able to study all the ins and outs of it, but it's certainly going to give us a picture of Jesus and the way that he went about not just sharing about himself in word, but the way he went about that in the way that he lived, in the way that he acted toward outsiders. John chapter 4. Let's start on verse 1 together. 
Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, that is, John the Baptist, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So basically, there's a lot of you know, hubbub and energy and buzz surrounding Jesus' ministry in Judea. It's not time yet for him to go to the cross, so he withdraws, withdraws to Galilee. Now, verse 4, he had to go through Samaria... So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, that is the Samaritans, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is a favorite passage of many for a good number of reasons. You know, there's this rich, deepening dialogue that occurs between Jesus and this woman. And there's a lot of ways that I could highlight things in this passage if I were preaching it in isolation. But I'm preaching along the lines of this topic that we have this morning. And what I think this passage does so well is it illustrates Jesus crossing over social barriers to extend his message, the good news. Because we're not talking, you know, there being one social barrier he crosses here in this dialogue with this Samaritan woman. I see three distinct social, political, and religious boundaries that would have kept Jesus from interacting with this woman that he has to cross in order to offer salvation, eternal life, spiritual satisfaction to this woman. Now, the first barrier I see is that Jesus is a man approaching a woman, And in the ancient culture, this would have been looked at with suspicion. A man speaking to a woman alone out in public. I know it's not as shocking today, right? But in the ancient world, this would have brought some suspicion, especially a holy and religious person, a rabbi going and speaking to a woman in public without her husband present. 
This would be like TMZ taking a photo of some celebrity holding somebody's hand that's not their spouse, right? I know you guys love TMZ. It's Orange County, so I thought that would really land well. It didn't, but... But right, you look at that, you say, that person is not that person's spouse. Like, that's the level of scandal that this would imply, Jesus speaking with this woman. And that's why, you know, the disciples in verse 27, the next following verse, when they show up, they go, Jesus is speaking with a woman? What's going on here? So that was the first boundary he crossed. Then on top of that, you've got Jesus' moral perfection. And he's approaching this sinner. Okay, she had five husbands, we know that. We know that the man that she's with at the point that Jesus is interacting with her, well, that's not her husband at all, so she's cohabitating with someone. And in the ancient world, the religious folks would see that as, you know, that moral corruption, it's sort of like a contagion. You know, you treat sinners sort of the same way you got treated in the early days of the pandemic in the grocery store, right? You knew when you walked through the grocery store, there were certain people that looked at you and kind of, uh, you know, they look at you and they want to get away from you, right? Like, don't get anywhere near me. They really respected that distance in the checkout line. That's essentially how they related to sinners as holy people. They saw them as contagious, right? That their uncleanness, that their unholiness would somehow be caught by you. So it was like the original social distancing. Uh, Keep those people away. You see that illustrated in that scene where that you know, sinful woman goes to anoint Jesus and she's wetting his feet with her tears and wiping it with her hair and the, and the religious folks are sitting back, sneering, going, look, if this man was a, a real prophet, if he was really sent by God, if he was holy, he would know who is touching him and he wouldn't be allowing this to happen because the only way you were supposed to deal with sinners was through distance. Okay, so he crosses these boundaries, but then there's this final boundary, not just a man to a woman, a saint to a sinner, but you've got a Jew to a Samaritan. And I cannot overestimate just how much hatred there was at this time in history between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans were the most hated ethnic group from among the Jews, Right? And, and, and really, they were like distant ancestors. You know, they, they were family. And isn't that true? Always your worst conflicts are in family. You know, it was true of the Jews as well. You had these 10 northern tribes of Israel that broke off from the United Kingdom of Israel after the death of King Solomon. And they set up their own, you know, rival capital city of Samaria and their own temple system of worship. And they had their own holy book that was the first five books of the Bible edited to kind of fit their narrative. And the Assyrians actually came and conquered those northern tribes and exiled them. And when they went away to Assyria, uh, they married foreign wives and started worshiping foreign gods. And they brought that back into the land. And actually, the Jews, those of the southern kingdom, they too were conquered and exiled. But when they came back, They looked at it as judgment, the fact that they had been destroyed. And what they wanted to pursue then was spiritual and religious purity to the utmost. That's where the Pharisees kind of came from, that mindset. So when they went to work rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, the Samaritans said, hey, we're going to come down from the north. We're going to help you guys out. You want our help in rebuilding the temple? And they said, no way. We don't want you to have anything to do with us. The whole reason we got destroyed, the whole reason we were exiled is because of your stain that you're leaving on this nation. You go away. And in fact, a couple hundred years later, they invaded Samaria, the Jews did, and destroyed that rival temple. So we're talking hundreds 
and hundreds and hundreds of years of ethnic and religious and spiritual tension and hatred. That's why that woman says to him, right, I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. How can you ask me for a drink? And it's inserted right there in the text for us to understand. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So guys, this just did not happen. This just never happened in the ancient world. Like if you were to pop into a Jewish synagogue and you were listening to the teaching, there's a good chance the teaching might be on the evils of the Samaritans and how much they were ruining the nation and how much they needed to be expelled because God's blessing was going to be removed from the nation because those people still existed. That might be what you hear in some pulpits today on a Sunday regarding people in this nation who don't live by a Christian worldview. You might pop in and hear a sermon on how those folks, the fact that they're here in this nation, they are ruining the American blessing of God. we got to get rid of them right now. But Jesus, God in the flesh, without compromising any of his truth, without sinning in any way whatsoever, he crosses over all of these social boundaries in order to offer this woman living water. And he initiates the conversation. He goes to her. And he uncovers things in her life which are unpleasant. But he doesn't sort of balk at the revelation when it's expressed. And by the end, he is inviting her into mysteries, divine mysteries that the disciples themselves haven't even quite figured out yet that the answer for all spiritual satisfaction and eternal life is found in acknowledging him as the Messiah. And he could have said, what will people infer if I speak to this woman? You know, what's going to be the public perception if somebody catches me in this situation right now speaking to this woman? Or what are they going to say about me when they find out I've been in this Samaritan village reaching out to people? He, he could have done that and said, I'm just going to avoid the situation. He could have said, oh, this, this place, yeah, they are heretics. They have, you know, maligned the word of God and changed it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call judgment forward. I'm going to call down fire from heaven. I'm going to burn this place to the ground. He could have said, oh, this woman, she doesn't believe what you're supposed to believe. She doesn't worship the way that you're supposed to worship. You know, she is, in fact, ruining this nation. And she's a degenerate. She's a half-breed. She's a dog because of her lifestyle. She's, she's, she's going to get offered living water is what she's going to get. She's going to get offered living water by God himself. And by the way, that compassionate, wildly generous gift gets multiplied out to all of her neighbors Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And then later on, after spending some time with Jesus, verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Jesus, the Savior of the world. He could have approached these outsiders from any angle. He could have taken them to task on any number of secondary issues that the Jews had with the Samaritans. But what Jesus understood is if they got him, if they understood him, they would get everything else. They would get everything else. A couple weeks ago, or months ago now, I broke my finger. I broke this finger right here. It's still broken. Yeah, I haven't done anything about it. So... You know, I, I, I was in my truck, and I had the fifth wheel attached, and I was 
parking it in the parking space and uh, you know, I put it in reverse as I was parking it and then I got out while it was still in reverse. And you know, it moved a little bit, but you figure when you get into park, right, and it kind of settles into park, it kind of has a little bit of movement, so it moved and then it just kept moving in my peripheral, like with the whole thing attached in a very close-in storage yard. So, you know, I, I don't remember making a decision, but suddenly I was back halfway in the truck and I'd stopped it from having any property damage, but I damaged myself. I broke my finger. And now I've, you know, I've been nursing this finger. I've been, I've been treating it kindly. You know, you can wrap it up, right? You can, you can uh, give yourself some ibuprofen along the way, right? You can manage the symptoms, but it's still broken and it's not going to get better, you know? So I, I realized right now I need to make the appointment for Kaiser. I will see someone in about a year because it's Kaiser, but, but eventually I'll get there. And the truth is I need to address the root issue here. I can keep managing the symptoms. I can keep taking the ibuprofen. I can keep babying it and wrapping it up. But until I go in there and they do whatever they got to do, you know, they got to reset it. They got to re-break it because I was a fool and didn't go in. Once that's done, I can do away with the ibuprofen. I don't have to wrap it anymore. I don't have to do anything about all those extra symptoms because I've addressed the root issue. In the same way, Jesus understood if people got him, if they saw him, if they received him, then they'd deal with their sin. Then they would start to worship in spirit and in truth. Then they would share with others what God had done in their life. But we have to care enough about all people to go to those people, to offer them that drink, that living water, the drink that their soul was made for, the only thing that can satisfy them. we got to open ourselves to being scrutinized for people looking, hey, why are you doing that? Why are you speaking openly and generously with that person? we got to open ourselves to fraternize with the enemy, as it were. We've got to go to people that by all definitions are completely removed and far from God if we're going to get them to see, not just in word, but in deed, who is that true living water. You know, I think it's a shame that when you look at our culture today, it really feels like Christians and non-Christians have just divided to the extent that there is just no dialogue, there's no conversation that happens at all. It's sort of like, reminds me of World War I trench warfare. Like every group has just decided in society, well, we're just going to dig a foxhole. We're going to dig it as deep as we can. And we're going to put up the barbed wire, you know, and we're going to line the you know, walls with rifles and we're going to wait for someone. You know, and it, it's just like that's the level of division that's happened and the distance that we've created with those who are outside of God, outside of faith in Jesus. You know, and it was the same back then. That's what I'm trying to reveal to you. You read about Samaritans and you go, whatever, it doesn't really bother you at all. We don't have a hatred in America that exists on the same level as the natural hatred that these people groups had for each other in the hundreds of years of history. Okay, so it was the same back then. They had the foxholes, the barbed wire, the guns ready to go. But there was this space in between where Jesus really ministered. In World War I, does anyone know what that space was called between trenches? No man's land. No man's land. It was called that because you wouldn't survive that place. No one went in that place between the trenches. But that's exactly where Jesus' ministry took place. In no man's land. 
in no man's land again and again and again in all the episodes of the Gospels, and that's exactly where he died, in no man's land, on a cross to be the Savior of the world. Haven't you, if you've been studying with us in the book of Matthew, like we've been studying in the book of Matthew before this short series, have you been struck with Jesus' approach? How he would go where no one would go. And how he would relate to people in a way that no one else would relate to people. Early in Matthew, he preaches, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm not saying he changed anything about his message. He's preaching truth. He's sticking to the word. Guys, change your life. Change your life because judgment is due to the world. All right, but grace has come. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And everywhere he went proclaiming this message of truth, he was demonstrating that good news toward outsiders. What does it say at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that we've studied together? As he went along preaching, he healed every disease and sickness, he was casting out demons. He was feasting and sharing a dinner table with the unclean, with sinners. He made his close band of disciples, those blue-collar, rural, backwoods guys. Those were the guys that he pulled around him. And everywhere he went, he ticked off the self-righteous because he wasn't operating from their playbook, which was demean, destroy, and distance. And we see this in Jesus' behavior. Everywhere he goes, goodness is following. And everywhere the Pharisees and those self-righteous go, it's demean, destroy, and distance. What did he tell them? Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Go to a Bible study, you experts in the Word. You think you know the Word inside out? I want you to go to a Bible study, figure out what it means that it says in the prophetic books, I desire mercy not sacrifice. You, you know all the words, right? But do you have the life? Do you have the deeds? Do you have the heart? Do you have the actions of a people that are demonstrating mercy? Because if you were really applying the word, you would know that that is what God is looking for, mercy in your lifestyle and actions, not sacrifice. Amazingly, Jesus was both of those things. He was the ultimate sacrifice that brought mercy. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He said, that's what I've come to do. In Jesus' ministry, he goes, this is what my whole role was on the earth. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we needed a ransom. We needed a ransom. Nothing that I'm saying this morning about crossing cultural and political and religious boundaries, nothing I'm saying about bringing grace and goodness everywhere we go in any way diminishes the reality of sin. Okay? It doesn't diminish the reality of sin at all. We acknowledge as those who preach the gospel that our sin was so heinous, our spiritual debt was so great and was so outstanding that the only offering that could satisfy that indebtedness was God himself. But that truth that we preach in word of the gospel only underscores the fact that when we're relating to sinners, we are bound to relate to them with humility, both in word and in deed. Because I don't talk about sin, I don't talk about judgment, I don't talk about hell with a sinner in this world, sort of like, you know, a doctor would talk about 
some strange malady that they haven't experienced themselves, you know, like, let me give you the setting, like, you know, you come in, you've got this strange malady, and the doctor pulls out, you know, his textbook, and, you know, it's kind of like, well, based on your symptoms, I think you've got this, you know, doctors Google things still. I don't know if you've ever been to the doctor's office, but they Google stuff. That's why they take so long to come in the room. They saw the symptoms that the nurse wrote up, and they're Googling, and they're getting out the textbook, and then they come in, and they go, well, yeah, you've got... uh, uh, white finger syndrome? What is that? Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's this, right? That's a real syndrome, by the way. I looked up random syndromes, construction workers, vibrations with the tools, white finger syndrome. Look it up later. It's interesting. But the doctor's like, I've never actually diagnosed this one before. Well, you're going to be dealing with this and this and this. Mm, good luck with that. <laughs> that isn't the way that we relate to sinners in this world when we talk about judgment in hell. We're not like, oh yeah, well guys, guess what? It says something about your situation in the word, you know, right here. Yeah, well, your fallenness and your wickedness and your weakness. Oh yeah, this is what's due to you because of all that. Like, yeah, here, you know, just giving you the information. Do with it what you will. If all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then the talk of sin and judgment and hell It falls squarely on my shoulders as much as it falls on your shoulders, as much as it falls on anyone else's shoulders. We don't speak in some cold clinical way about somebody else's experience. We're speaking from a place of requiring grace ourselves. That's why we are bound in word and deed to approach people with humility. Jesus was the only one who could have interacted with sinners and treated them with venom and vengeance. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15? And take this one to heart for all of you out there that need God's grace. The writer of Hebrews says, We do not have an eternal high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, meaning he can empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He can feel something for us in our weakness. He can feel something for us in our errors. He experienced this world. He was tempted in every way. He didn't sin. He didn't compromise one bit of his holiness, but he entered into these experiences and he feels something for our experiences. So that's what I'm saying here. If Jesus in all of his perfection could feel something for sinners... People who are far from him, just like the Samaritan woman, you can tell he's driven and drawn toward her despite all the boundaries that she has between herself and God. If Jesus could do that, how is it that we, sinners, people who have not just been tempted in every way, but we've sinned in many ways, how is it we can go around relating to fellow sinners with vindictiveness, with venom, with vengeance, with condemnation, eager to pull judgment forward to today, even though the judgment has not yet occurred. And I'm over it. I'm over that sort of heart posture. If Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, then how can we do anything but the exact same thing? Not live this life for us, not live this life for what we're going to get out of it, But live this life in such a posture that we are serving and giving ourselves up to point them to the ransom of Jesus Christ. I am bound to serve 
all people. And I'm not bound because of some political ideology. I'm not bound because of some social movement that's going on. I'm not bound because I've got this uh, dream of a utopian society. I am bound to serve by the example and the word of God. I am bound to serve outsiders, those who do not know Jesus, with compassion, with grace, with kindness, because to my core, I am convicted by the word of God that that is what I need to do. Look at what the scriptures say. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans, outsiders, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your lights, brothers and sisters, shine before others that they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It is so airtight. It's an open and shut case. Titus chapter 2. Paul is speaking to Titus and he's telling him, these are the things I want you to teach. These are the things I want you to proclaim to those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And he starts by expressing the gospel, the word. Verse 11. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Oh. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It sounds good, doesn't it? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You know, this is only for a while, guys, what we're doing here, but this is how we're to live. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, again, the gospel gave himself for us to redeem us from all unwickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then, Titus, are the things you should teach. So you're wondering if I'm hammering this home. You know, you get, you get some time on a pulpit. You, you, you craft a series. What should you teach? This is the stuff that you should teach. Encourage. Stir it up. Like, people are doing it. Do it more. And rebuke. If you're not doing it, what are you doing? Rebuke with all authority. Man, that is a powerful statement right there in God's word. This is like, look, you can take this whole section that you just read, I just read, and you can underline it, double underline it, triple underline it. Like, no one can argue with this, all right? Speak this kind of message with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, why would anyone despise anyone for preaching a message where we recognize the gospel of God's grace and then we feel bound and eager to do good out in the rest of the world? Why would anyone despise that sort of message? Well, read the next verse. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Well, there you go. That's why I would be despised for sharing this message because people don't like that kind of good. They don't want to hear that sort of good life that they're supposed to lead. Be obedient. Mm, nope, nope. All right. I was eager to do good until you started outlining how I could be good in this world. You know, now you want to shoot the messenger. I'm supposed to preach this with all authority. Be obedient. Be ready to do whatever is good. Slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. Insiders, outsiders, everyone. At one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You're just like, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans. You were playing the game that everybody else was playing in society. You had those hatreds. But when the kindness 
and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done. Remember that humility. You know, we are those who have failed in our weaknesses. No, it wasn't because of what we did, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that well of living water, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. If it feels like I'm stressing it, he told me, stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, you and I, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It is so clear cut, obvious, on the surface, who we are to be on the other side of having received the gospel. How we are to live and relate to others beyond the family of God. He said, this is now your discipline. This is now your passion. You know, you may have heard it said that you need 10,000 hours at a discipline to master something. He's saying, this is what you are going to learn to mastery now that you follow Jesus. You're going to learn to serve. You're going to learn to bring good every place that you go as evidence of the very things that you declare. And you'd think that that message is so clear-cut from the example of Jesus to all the scriptures I just read that no one could argue with it. And yet the next verse, verse 9, but here's what you got to avoid, Titus, because this is other stuff that's going to be going on. Foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless, and then there's a warning about divisive people. Because as clear as it is, there's still going to be some noise and chatter and clatter and drama that's going to be going on, distracting the whole plot line. And I think sometimes we fill our lives and we fill ourselves with noise and clatter and drama because we're bored, because we haven't been occupying ourselves with the things of God, and in place of doing the very things that God has been so clear about us doing, we find other things to take up our time and energy and our emotions. All this noise, all this drama. It's like, what do you do when you get home from a long day at work? You got all this time left in your day. Sit down, turn on Netflix. Watch some fake characters argue in some fake conflicts. Uh, they're not real. The conflicts aren't real, but you're, you're sitting there, you're like, wow, you know, this is really engaging. There's fake characters creating fake conflicts and filling up your time with drama. And in the world, there's a lot of fake characters coming up with fake quarrels and arguments that are producing absolutely nothing. Producing absolutely nothing. It's just noise. And so my hope for the branches community, my prayer is that we would put our hand to the plow of the kingdom of God and we wouldn't look back. We just wouldn't get sucked into it. We wouldn't waste our energy on it. We do the things that God has so clearly called us to do, putting our hand to the plow as Jesus teaches and not looking back. Thirsty people extending the drink of living water to other thirsty people in word and in Indeed. As we consider this teaching, the passages that we've gone through, I want you to consider these three questions in a time of reflection right now. 
similar to last week, I've got these questions for you. First question, do you cross social boundaries or create them? Do you cross social boundaries or create them? And I don't mean like you get way too close to people when you're talking to them, social boundaries. All right, respect that. All right, respect people's space. I'm talking about all the dividing lines that keep getting generated today, left and right and left and right and center and all over the place. Do you play to those? Or do you enter into the no man's land? Are you just part of the front that's digging a deeper foxhole and you're helping set up the barbed wire and you've got your rifle pointed? You know, you've taken up your righteous post. That's not where the ministry is happening in this present age. It's happening in the no man's land. And guess what? Today, when you enter into the no man's land, when you don't fit into these foxholes and you want to actually minister to people with the goodness of the gospel... You might die. You might face a lot of criticism. You might face a lot of negativity from a lot of people, but that's where the ministry is happening. So are you entering into that place? Are you crossing those boundaries just as Jesus did with that Samaritan woman? Does the gospel make you proud or does it make you humble? It's a simple question, but it's a very important question. Does the gospel make you proud or does it make you humble? Because if we really understand the gospel that we're extending toward other people, if it's really taken root in us and we see it with clear eyes, we're going to remain humble. You're bound to show others grace. Because the very ground that you and I stand on is the ground of God's kindness. We are justified by grace. If you remove grace out of the equation, you pull the rug out from under yourself. You have nowhere left to stand. I have nowhere left to stand. So if I really understand the gospel, it leads me to a place of humility. It doesn't lead me to a place of pride where I think I can demean and destroy and distance, just like those self-righteous religious leaders. Where are you serving in Christ's example? That's the final question. Where are you serving in Christ's example? It's not enough for us to just have the spiritual integrity in here. If we're going to extend living water to those beyond the bounds of this fellowship, we got to be where they are. Look at the manner and tone and setting of Jesus' ministry as he's going around sharing the truth, never compromising truth, never compromising on his holiness. He's out there and he's bearing the goodness of God everywhere he goes. So where are we serving You might be sitting there waiting on God to give you this ultimate sense of calling, your spiritual giftedness, all this stuff. Jesus, he washed his disciples' feet. Okay, he got into the posture of a slave. And he said, this is what all of you are going to do now. If your master has washed your feet, this is now how you operate in this world. How you relate to one another and how you're going to be relating as you go into all the world. That wasn't some ultimate vision and calling. That's just the character of God. That's just the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. So where are we serving in line with Christ? Not looking to be served, but to serve. I want us to reflect on these questions in prayer before the Lord. Would you join me in prayer?
Jesus, I thank you for your grace, your goodness, your courage, your boldness. Jesus, we celebrate you. We praise you because you crossed over boundaries to offer us living water. You didn't just do it for this woman. In John chapter 4, if you weren't a God, if you weren't a Savior that was willing to cross over boundaries, then we would still be in sin. Judgment, hell would still fall squarely on our shoulders, but you crossed over. When we were still enemies, you died for us. Lord, teach us to be people who enter into that same no man's land to do ministry. For those who are far from you, maybe there's three boundaries that are set up, five, ten boundaries that are set up because of this view and that view and this idea and that idea, this sin. Jesus, you surmounted all those obstacles to give people a drink of spiritual satisfaction and eternal life. Lord, would we do the same? Help us to get out of the foxholes. Help us to cut down the barbed wire. Help us to put down the guns and do your work. In all humility, Jesus, we stand on the ground of grace every day. The life that we live, we're breathing in your grace. We're justified not by anything that we have done. We have been filled with hatreds. We were filled with malice and envy. You are destroying those worldly passions in us. You're teaching us to be peaceable. You're teaching us to be gentle with everyone. Eager to do good in all humility, Lord. Let us serve as you served. May the tone, may the character, may the the setting of our preaching about you, Jesus, be in the environment of service, of bearing goodness to those around us. Call us into that. Make us masters. Let that be our passion to learn your heart of service. You said the greatest in the kingdom is the servant. We embrace that vision that you've given us, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.